Thank you, Rachel. It, it, Rachel, a wee bit, because I wanted to point that out, 50,000 people. No, it's great. But what Rachel didn't point out is that they all stayed in church for a six-hour sermon. So um, half 11, we we're already late to get started. So half four, just in time for the cup final. Great, let's go. Um, this week, um, this week I, me and Haley watched an episode of The Crown. Um, we're in the latest series. And uh, I wanted to start ages ago, but Haley, with the Queen dying, Haley was always like, no, it's a bit too soon. I don't know why, like, the Queen doesn't have anything to do. Anyway, but we started watching the latest series of The Crown, and we're halfway through this latest series. And, and this episode, we, we, we meet Muhammad al-Fayed, right? So it, usually young people probably didn't know who it is, but he, he owned Fulham Football Club. That's one of his attributes. He was an Egyptian businessman, became incredibly wealthy from very humble beginnings. Um, but one of his main goals in life was not just to be rich and powerful, but he, he, he wanted to be accepted by the royal family. And in particular, he wanted to, to, to be accepted by the queen. He thought that was the pinnacle of, of life or the pinnacle of success would, would be that if you could just be in that inner circle, if you could just be accepted by, by, by the royalty. And one of the main things he does in this episode, and, and this actually happened in real life, that he, 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 he buys a derelict mansion that, that belonged to uh, the, the former king, actually, King Edward, who abdicated. Um, and, and this mansion has, has gone into wreck and ruin. It's dilapidated, and it, but it still contains loads of priceless royal heirlooms. And, and he thinks that, well, if he can carry out this restoration work, if he can rebuild this mansion, if he can restore all these heirlooms, then, uh, uh, then maybe he will make the queen happy and, and she will finally accept him. And so he spends millions and millions of pounds and carries out months of renovation work and restoration work on this house and, and on all these family, royal family heirlooms. But the point of all his work and all the expense wasn't to finish up with a nice mansion to live in. It wasn't even to restore these heirlooms for the sake of history. There was always a higher goal and the goal was to be close to the queen. That was always his goal. And that's my first point this morning. It's really simple. God is our end goal. That's it. God himself is the end goal of our lives. And we could probably just go away and ponder that and keep working that out and God would lead him to himself. It's him that we're aiming towards. God is, is all about himself, Right? He's completely self-centered in that way, but not in self-centered in the way that we think of it, but he rightly wants himself to be glorified. And think about it. If God is the, the definition of love, if he is the very meaning of love and beauty and peace and joy, then, then to want us to be about anything else except him would be wicked. But in his love, he desires us to worship him and center our lives around him because this is the single greatest thing. And so everything he is doing in our lives and in the world and throughout history and especially through Jesus on the cross is about leading us to that end goal himself. We were separated from him and he wants to bring us back. The new creation, the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem that we are headed for, that's all about God leading us to be in his place dwelling with him. So God is our end goal. We got straight into the Straight into the meat this morning, no messing about. We, we read in, in, in chapter 7, at the start of chapter 7, that, that finally the wall has been finished. In record time, uh, the city walls were finished in 52 days. It's an incredible achievement. 
Like, think about all the opposition they faced and the threats of violence and, and all this kind of stuff, but still they managed to finish in 52 days. And, th and this is not like a, 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 a you know, A-team, class team of, of, of builders and construction workers and engineers going in. This is every, everyday people. This is the goldsmiths and the perfumers and, and the singers and, and, and the children all chipping in. And they get it done. Uh, last weekend, uh, Haley and I were in York, and, and it's a very historic city, really beautiful, and you can walk around the walls. I kept saying it was like Derry, only better. It's the, the Derry's walls of York. Um, but you can walk around the walls, and I was just saying to Haley, because anyway, I never stopped thinking, but this, we were on the section of wall, and it was about six feet wide. And I was like, this is what I've been studying in, in, in Ezra and Nehemiah. These walls were about six feet wide. And you kind of think, how could you ever build this in years? Never mind 52 days. And then I read this week that archaeologists have actually discovered um, parts of the ruins of the walls of Jerusalem that are different from the rest of it. And they're like, well, this was not built by a skilled craftsman, and that was built in a hurry. Uh, they can actually see archaeological evidence for this. But nevertheless, the work is completed. 50,000 people living in their towns. And then they say, well, now what? And you might have noticed that we're not even close to the end of the book of Nehemiah yet. I mean, we have to go all the way to chapter 13. So now what? Temple's done. The walls are done. Now what? Well, look at verse 1 of chapter 8. And forgive my voice this morning because I'm getting over a cold. Apparently, I'm sick all the time now. Um, verse 1. And all the people, all the people, everyone that, that, that Rachel mentioned in the reading, all the people, I love that the singers get a special mention, okay? Okay, James, get a special mention. All the people gathered as one man, as one person, into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. You see, the people gathered there inside the city because they wanted to see the, what the point of it all had been. <coughs> Excuse me. They wanted to know what was the point of all their struggle? What was the point of all the blood and sweat and tears? What has it all been for? And they gather together. Because they sensed that the whole rebuilding and renewal work had been about God. Just like Muhammad al-Fayed's mansion, the building project was never the end goal in itself, was it? The rebuilding of Jerusalem was never the end in and of itself. It was never about having a safe place to live in or, or a nice scenic, you know, walls to walk around for tourists or something. It's always been about God's people in God's place in adoration of him. That's all God has ever desired. And listen, any vision that, that God gives his people will always be about him. It'll always be about leading us to him. Now think about sanctification. That word is in the Bible. I'm not making it up. It just means that the process that we are in of God making us more and more like Jesus, okay? And he does this throughout the course of our lives in many, many different ways. We see, the goal isn't simply to be like Jesus. The goal is to be like Jesus so that we can be with God and enjoy him forever. This is the journey that God has us on. He has chosen you, if you are a Christian this morning, he has chosen you from before the foundations of the world to be part of his rebuilding and renewal work because he wants to be with you. Think about how the Israelites, the 50,000 of them that day, you know, I, I imagine they're carrying a few bruises and maybe the odd broken finger or, you know, probably sore backs. Maybe they have a few more muscles than they had before. 52 days of hard labor. 
And they could look back in their journey. They've traveled 900 miles over a few generations now, over decades. They've suffered opposition, threats of violence, abuse, conspiracies against them. And on top of that, they're just, they've just been trying to maintain faithful and motivated to keep on doing the work that God had given to them. Now, I wonder, does that resonate with us this morning? Do you find yourself struggling to remain faithful and motivated to keep on doing the work of living the way of Jesus? Maybe you're like these people. Are you asking, what's the point? Well, please let the Holy Spirit comfort you this morning. God is the point. You are on a journey towards God himself. And, and maybe right now it feels like you're on top of a pile of rubble that's higher than yourself. And, and you have to be building this wall. And you've got a trial in one hand and a shield in the other because people are attacking you. And you're thinking, how am I ever going to do this? What is the point? Well, Nehemiah 8 is the point. Because one day, one day, we will gather inside the completed city walls with all God's people and 50,000 will look like a small group compared to that great multitude. And we will stand in that great community and God himself will be there. Like, do you realize that you're going to see Jesus face to face? That's what this gathering in Nehemiah points forward to. And it's what every church gathering points forward to. This gathering is meant to make the people long for a greater reality that comes through Jesus. And when we gather together as a church like this, it's meant to, to make us long for that final day when we will be with Jesus face to face. If you think about this gathering here in Nehemiah chapter 8, because if, you, if we look at it and break it down, it's kind of just like a normal church service, isn't it? <coughs> I apologize for coughing into the mic. That's awful. Um, Rachel was right to say 50,000 people went to church that day. You see, here's how it's like a church service. All the people gathered in unity. That's what we're told, verse 1. God is praised. The, the, the word of God is read, and then it's explained. And the people are transformed and then sent out in joy and obedience. That's what happens. It kind of sounds like church, doesn't it? Now take a look at verses 2 and 3. It says, So Ezra the priest brought the law, so they've asked for it to be read, uh, uh, before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard, and I'll come back to that in a second, on the first day of the seventh month, and he read from it facing the square um, before the water gate from the early morning until midday, six hours, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. You see, in this church service, the people have gathered in the square at the water gate. Right, that's important. Why? Not just because they could get a drink, and they could go there for six hours, but it is the water gate for a reason. There was access to water so they could stay hydrated. But more importantly, if they had gathered in the temple, it would only have been the men that could have gone there. But in the square, in the place where everyday life happens, who gathers? He repeats it twice. Men, women, and, and children. Those who could understand means anybody that's old enough to understand what's going on. God is about to speak, to bring revival to his people, and he does it in the public place with everybody involved, all the people, the whole community. You see, God's renewal work is for everybody. God, this day in Jerusalem, 500 years before Jesus, brings a revival. He brings a spiritual renewal and an awakening. 
people are, are renewed in their desire to worship and obey him. Because they're after God himself. They're, they see that God is the point, And so they come looking for him. And God renews them and strengthens them. But look how he does it. See that last sentence? I think, Tim, in the next sentence, I've underlined it. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Now, the English doesn't do this sentence justice in all its fairness. In the Hebrew, it's not just about, you know, listening carefully. There's this poetic sense in the language that the people are all leaning forward like this. They're, they're, you might say they're on the edge of their seats. There's an eagerness here. There's a hungerness, a hungerness, a hunger here. There's an eagerness to hear the word of God. They're so eager and hungry for it that they stay for six hours. A six-hour sermon, that's how you know there's revival happening. I probably have enough material on this one chapter to do six hours if you want, so let me know and I'll just keep going. There was a spiritual hunger, a hunger for God, a hunger, for, an appetite for his word. And this is my second point this morning. Yes, God is, is the end goal, but spiritual renewal starts with a hunger for God's word. See, as the people gathered that day in the square, we're told that they gathered as one person. They had a unity. But their unity wasn't just like that they've all been through an extreme trial and they've all built this wall in 52 days. Their unity was that they were all on the edge of their seats wanting to hear from God's word. They, their unity was that they were hungry to listen to God. And out of that, God brought a great spiritual awakening. And then what happened next was pretty familiar to us. You see, Ezra begins to read the, 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 the scriptures, their Bible, the, the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And he gets up on this. They've obviously, you know, Nehemiah's probably, you know, had a couple of carpenters knock up a, a podium, a, a pulpit, or a platform. And so Ezra gets up on the platform and so all the people could hear and see him reading. And then it was explained. He has 13 guys, six on one side, seven on the other. And they were explaining what is being read. Like it seems like a pretty ordinary church gathering, doesn't it? But what happens is anything but ordinary. See, church, you might think that, that coming to the gathering like this is the most ordinary thing in the world. But let me tell you, it is anything but ordinary. In fact, it's extraordinary. The Spirit of God working through the Word of God leads to spiritual renewal. That's what happens in here. The Spirit of God simply working through the Word of God leads to spiritual renewal. So please don't fall into the trap of thinking that the gathering is ordinary or it's routine. And please don't be tempted to treat it that way. Don't dishonor the gathering. That's why we're told to not neglect the gathering. It's the people gathered in unity under the preaching of God's Word that He uses then to transform hearts and lives, to awaken us, to revive us, to renew us. So we come eager to hear God's word. We, we come in unity with our brothers and sisters. Because what from the outside looks like just a, a room full of people, I don't know how many people are in here, 60 people, something like that, looks pretty ordinary. But God uses this to transform us, to spiritually awaken us, to sustain us. God transforms the hearts and lives of people when we gather together as one under the preaching of his word. 
That's always been his model. And it's the most extraordinary thing in the world. Please don't miss the significance of the church gathered. The people of Israel gather hungry, eager, hungry to hear God. And it was their hunger for the word of God that led to this spiritual renewal. So here's what I want to ask us this morning. How's your appetite? What's your appetite? Um, have you ever seen the Vicar of Dibley Christmas special? You know the one where um, she has to go like four different houses for dinner? Have you seen this? It's a classic. You have to watch it. And it's really funny. And, and she, she feels like she can't say no to anyone. She ends up saying yes to all these dinners. And she's eating for, and, the, and the portions keep getting bigger and bigger. And, and by the end of it, she's like, she gets the farmer to bring her home on the, you know, on the front loader. And she's just like rolls out of it. And she... But by the fourth house, she just can't even face the thought of food. She's trying everything, every clever trick she can to, to not have to eat food. She's stuffed. And I wonder, sometimes do we come to church in that way, don't we? Like fill up on the junk food. Fill up on all the things we've been feasting on. Our worries, social media, the news, whatever it may be. Things that fill us up, consume us, but don't satisfy. But listen, Jesus invites us to come and meet with the living God every single time we gather. That's what this is about. And he doesn't say, well, listen, look, if you're pretty full, I'll just bring the dessert. And he doesn't say, well, if you've had enough to drink, just have a wee sip and that'll be enough. No, the Lord Jesus says, all who are thirsty, come to me. He says, if you're hungry, I will give you the bread of life. He says, if you're weak, I will give you rest. That's what we're invited into as we gather. We come to him empty and he fills us up. I'm not going to go to McDonald's before I go and have my mom's roast dinner. You know what I mean? So how's your appetite? Do we prepare our hearts to come to the gathering? Do we come expecting to hear God speak and, and have our lives transformed and our hearts awakened? See, most of us want spiritual renewal. I'd say that I'd say, I, it's a fair bet to say that, that none of us are completely satisfied with our spiritual life or our walk with Jesus. If you are, can you please tell me what that looks like for you? Most of us want to be awakened, but the thing is, we don't come hungry and allow him to fill us up. Church, we are the people of God, and we should come and gather with eagerness to hear from God because he is eager to speak to us. He desires nothing more than to fill us up with his goodness and his love and his righteousness. And when we come with eagerness, the hunger for him, we will be spiritually awakened and transformed by the Holy Spirit at work within us. Now, just one more thing on this. The, the danger is that all of us have a Bible, but most of the time we leave it on the proverbial shelf, you know? We say we want to hear God speak or that we can't hear God speak but we never go to the place where God is speaking the loudest. <laughs> I know that's me, right? I can do that. I want to encourage you to develop a hunger for God's word and, and, and develop a desire to be in the gathering and he will transform your heart and your life. He will renew you. Like, do you feel like your faith is stale? Do you feel a bit uninspired? I, I know what it's like to, you know, you, you, someone's like, you know, asking you how maybe... Um, or, or what you've been studying, or what you've been reading, and you realize, I'm living off like steel crumbs that I read two years ago. 
I know what that feels like. Do you feel like you're going through the motions then? Be hungry for God's word and, and then receive it and allow it to change you. Revival begins with a hunger for God's word. I don't know if, maybe I'm sure you have, or you're aware of the, uh, what's happening in Asbury in Kentucky right now in that university. A spiritual awakening is happening, right? And I'll be honest, um, I was just saying to Lauren this morning, uh, <laughs> I was reading this passage about spiritual renewal and revival 50,000 people gathered praising God as one. And I was feeling that, and I was like, yeah, there's going to be a revival in village this, this Sunday. And you turn up, and the projector's not working, and I've got a cold, all no, runny nose and coughing, and nothing's working. And you're like, oh, well, there we go. <laughs> but the point is, we don't desire revival. We should desire God. You see, what, what happened in Kentucky in that university was really simple. A, a group of students and, and university staff gathered in the chapel for a simple service where the Bible was read and explained and then received by eager hearts and hungry people hungry for God. That's how God works. He transforms the hearts and lives of people when they gather as one under the preaching of his word. God's spirit working through his word to revive and renew his people. And listen, I don't know about you. Actually, I do know about you. You need this. I need this. We need this. We need to be awakened and revived. And not just once, but we need this day by day. That's why we gather weekly. Why do you think we're coming to this table all the time? Because we need this. It's this spiritual awakening that we receive through the gathering that sustains us, that equips us to go back to our jobs tomorrow and be Jesus to those people. We need the Holy Spirit awakening us this way. It would be impossible for any of us to live in the way of Jesus without the Holy Spirit awakening us and renewing us and reviving us and transforming our hearts and lives. So let's come hungry. Let's come eager. Let's come ready to hear and receive and let God do the work. And I've spent so long on that first point and I'm not even halfway through, guys, I'll be honest with you. We might get six hours, you never know. Um, but the people gathered with eagerness. The word was preached. How's your appetite? And then we see this spiritual awakening happen. happen. And that's my next point. Spiritual, spiritual renewal awakens God's people. See, that's what's happening here in, in Nehemiah chapter 8. Their hunger for God's word led to the people being spiritually awakened, right? And in some ways, that's an extraordinary thing. And in some ways, it is ordinary. It's ordinary in the kingdom of God sense. And the thing that this is what God does for his people. He feeds us. He revives us. He sustains us. And the first thing we see is that their hearts were awakened in unified worship. Their hearts are awakened in unified worship. Ezra blessed the Lord, verse 6. The great God. I love how like, Nehemiah puts it in. Like, we don't know who. He's like, just in case... <laughs> The Lord is the great God. And the people, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So Ezra begins with a call to worship like we do. And we don't know what he said in that call to worship. In fact, we don't even know what portion of the law that, that he, he read from, although it pertains to the Feast of Booths that we'll come to later. But he, he leads the people in praising God, and they respond in unified worship. You can see that God is doing something here. Even from the call to worship, God is moving because the people have come ready to receive. God is praised and all the people together as one worship 
all the people said, Amen, together. This just means they say, let it be so. Lord, fulfill your promises. And they lift their hands. Now, if you don't know why people lift their hands in worship, well, it's just a, a way um, that people use to express their worship and show their sense of need. Okay? Lifting your hands in worship is, is simply an outward expression of an inward posture, right? It's, it's a posture of neediness before God and adoration before Him. That's what lifting your hands in the Bible is about. An outward expression of an internal attitude. Now, now it's not just an Old Testament thing either. Paul actually tells Timothy in, in 1 Timothy 2 that he desires that, that everyone would pray lifting holy hands. I'm not saying it's a command, but it's there in Scripture all the way through. An outward expression of an inward attitude. I suppose like if I'm happy, I smile. If I'm excited, I might, I don't know, jump up and down. Um, don't know what you might do when you're excited or... If I'm in need of God and full of adoration for him, then I might lift my hands and worship. And they also bow their heads, a symbol of, of reverence before holy God. Their faces are turned towards the earth. An outward expression of an internal attitude. Sometimes I wonder that people are okay with bowing your head but not lifting your hands. <laughs> Seems the same thing in scripture to me. Like we're expression of an internal attitude. That's a tangent. And all these things are indications that, 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 that God is moving. From the call to worship, there is a spiritual awakening. And I love it when this happens. I, you know those Sundays when it just seems more than others that God is doing something? And this happens when we come together as one with eagerness to find God, to see God, to worship God. And maybe I want to ask you do, you, do you find it hard to worship? Do you find it difficult? Do you, do you maybe even lack the desire to worship? If that's the case, then I'm going to ask you again, how's your appetite? Are we hungry for God? Because when we come with hungry hearts, hearts desiring God and eager to see Him and know Him and hear from Him and be close to Him, hungry for God Himself, then we will worship in unity. And it won't matter who's around you, and it won't matter who can see you. You will just worship the living God and the risen Lord Jesus. You will become in awe of Him. Their hunger for God awakened their hearts in unified worship, but they also had their strength awakened in the joy of the Lord. Strength awakened in the joy of the Lord. We see this in verses 9 to 12. And I'm not, I think it's on the screen, Tim, but if it's not, um, I, I won't read it all, but I'll describe what happened. You see, it, they start to read the law, and then the, the people begin to weep. And, and the Levites and Nehemiah and Ezra calm the people and say, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. Verse 10. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Did you know that you were created for joy? Joy. Like our, our chief, the, the Westminster Confession of Faith puts it this way, the chief end of man is to en enjoy God and glorify Him forever. If we go back to creation, we see Adam and Eve in the garden where He's created them. And, and what do they have? they have? They walk with Him face to face every single day in the delights of this creation that He's given to them. In Psalm 43 verse 4, the psalmist says that God is my exceeding joy. 
on the night before Jesus was crucified, you know, he was praying, right? The night he was betrayed, the night he knew that his, his best friend was coming to betray him and all of what lay ahead of him, he knew what was coming and he prays to the Father. He prays, these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in them. Jesus preached everything he preached and did everything he did so that we would be full of the joy of God. Isn't that something? when the people in Nehemiah heard the law read out, joy was far from their hearts and it wasn't their first response. You see, when they heard the law read out, they were confronted just how far off God's holiness they really were. They heard of God's holiness as Ezra read the law and the, and the Levites explained it to him and they realized they could never live up to it. And in a sense, of course, it's right to weep over our sin. We should mourn that we're far off God's holiness. Of course we should. To have an attitude of repentance and being sorry before God. God is holy, and we are far off His holiness. Romans 3 tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. That's the truth of our reality. Who wouldn't weep when they realize this? And next week, we're, we're going to see how actually good it is to confess our sins. But then Nehemiah intervenes, and he tells them to be calm and still their hearts. Because they were doing anything wrong, but Nehemiah tells them to stop weeping and mourning and start celebrating because if we are stuck in mourning over our sin, then it shows we haven't grasped the fullness of God's forgiveness. You see, for these people, they're, you know where they're standing? They're right beside the temple. They're in the completed city. Their exile was over. In a sense, the punishment for their sin had been paid. So stop mourning and go and eat the fat and drink the sweet wine and then give to people that don't have any. Church, we should take our sins seriously. We should desire to live in holiness and righteousness. But if that kind of morphs into perpetual mourning, then we haven't fully grasped the forgiveness of God. The forgiveness that he's given to us through the death of Jesus and applied to us in the Holy Spirit. You see, being serious about the holiness of God and our own sin isn't opposite to being joyful in the Lord. We have the joy because we know how sinful we are, but yet at the same time know we're forgiven. We should be the, the most joyful people in the world. Why? Because our debt has been paid. Our exile is over. Jesus has died on the cross. He has rose again. The sacrifice for our sin is complete and Jesus is alive so that we can forever be alive with him. Our sin has been forgiven. Our names are in the book of life and we are on our way to an eternity in the new creation to live in the presence of God forever in the fullness of joy. That's our reality. So why would we not be joyful? Now listen, don't worry. I know that not everybody's like me. You don't all have to run around an excited Labrador puppy and you know, whatever all the time. Being joyful isn't the same as having a sunny disposition. It's not thinking that the world is all, you know, like rainbows and unicorns and things that we Abigail likes. <laughs> being joyful is simply being content and happy and the knowledge that is well with my soul. So whenever everything else around you is falling apart, you still have that joy because that's the one thing that never changes. And by the way, for some of you, that will mean that you have to tell your face from time to time. <laughs> You know the word uh, 
I'm going off on another tangent, but it's a good one, so bear with me. The, the word joy in, in Greek is kara, and, and the word gift in Greek is charis, right? Very similar, very close meaning. And the joy that we have as believers is a gift from the Holy Spirit because of who we now are in Jesus. It's not our joy. It's God's joy that he gives to us as a gift. And so don't worry. You don't have to muster it up. You don't have to try and be joyful. I want to be more happy. I want to be more joyful. The joy of the Lord is a spiritual awakening that happens when we seek God with hungry hearts. So no, being joyful doesn't mean that we have to be happy, clappy people all the time. Being joyful in the Lord is a deep set peace and happiness that knows who our Jesus is. I know Christians, even in this room today, that even when they're going through the hardest trials, they are full of joy, and that has been so encouraging to me recently. This is what Nehemiah says when he says, don't be grieved. The joy of the Lord is your strength. You see, the peace and joy that comes from knowing Jesus will be the thing that sustains you through life. The joy of the Lord, that, that peace of the sure knowledge of Christ's love will be the thing that sustains you when everything else is failing. When nothing else seems to be going right. And listen, yeah, sometimes God will bring us to the place where everything is falling apart. And he does that so that we will remember that he's the only thing we have to rely on. And that's our strength. He is our strength. His joy in us is our strength. What else, really, think about it. What else is it to rely on? And that knowledge that Jesus loves me. Right? What else are you going to rely on? We need him to need him, Andy. Um, so maybe you struggle with that joy thing, and I know a lot of us do. Again, I'll come back to this. How's your appetite? <laughs> what do you long for? And look what happens here. Verse 12 tells us that Nehemiah then explains to the people and then encourages them, and all the people then, they do become full of joy, and they do go off and eat and drink and share with the people who don't have any because why? Verse 12, where is it? Verse 12, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. You see how all this fits together? It's class. The people gather in unity, hungry for God, eager to hear his word. And then as they wait for God, as they're fed, they receive that spiritual awakening and they are strengthened in the joy of the Lord. That's what happens. That's what happens here. It's amazing. Like the psalm says, strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord and we'll fly like, eagle, like we're on eagle's wings. Their hearts are awakened in unified worship. Their strength is awakened in the joy of the Lord. And then finally, their obedience is awakened to do God's will. This new obedience. We see this in verses 13 to 17. And again, it's a long passage and I know that we're pushed for time, so I'm not gonna read it all. But what happens is that the people discover what the Bible says, and then they put it into action, and they do that gladly, right? It's that simple. They see this command. And by the way, you know how you know they're transformed? Because they've all gone back and had the feasts and the parties, and then they can't, you, you, they're still reading the Bible the next day. It's the next day. On the second day, the heads of the father's houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra, the scribe, in order to study the words of the law. Something has happened. Suddenly you have people who are eager. I want more. I want to keep studying. That's how you know their hearts have been transformed. 
And so they see this command in the law about the Feast of Booths, and, and then they do it. The Feast of Booths, we really don't have time to go into it, but the Feast of Booths was just a, a feast that was set up uh, to remember, to remind them of their time in the wilderness. So the time they left um, Egypt, crossed the Red Sea, all that, and then the 40 years in the wilderness before they came into the Promised Land. The Feast of Booths was a time for that, and, and you would set up like little temporary shelters to remember that they lived in temporary shelters in the wilderness. So they see this command about doing this feast, and then they just do it. It's pretty simple. Hearts awakened by the Holy Spirit will be obedient in doing God's will. That's it. This is evidence that real spiritual awakening is taking place. And if there's no desire to obey God, then you have to question, has that awakening really taken place? You see, the point of the gathering is to encounter God, yes, but the gathering doesn't last forever, right? At some point, we have to go back to our normal lives. But as we go, we go with awakened hearts. When we are alive in the Spirit, we will desire to do what God says. You see how this all fits together? You see how this all flows? The people gather in unity with that eagerness to, to hear God speak. And then the Word is taught and it's explained and the people receive it and understand it. They, they're full of joy and, and, and the, the spiritual awakening happens. And then the people go on to put into practice what God has commanded in His Word. That's, the Christian life isn't complicated, right? Maybe it is complicated. It's not, it is simple. That's what I'm trying to say. It's simple. We wait for God, see what he says in his word, and then we do it. See, the gathering isn't about some nice wee spiritual experience. I mean, as you've seen this morning, our gatherings aren't exactly like a slick and polished production, you know? It's not, uh, it's not about some experience. It's, it's not about coming for some spiritual fix two hours a week. The point of the gathering is that we would be transformed and changed. And when our hearts are transformed, our behavior will be transformed, and we will actually do what God says. Because joyful obedience to God is the fruit of an awakened heart. Joyful obedience to God is the fruit of an awakened heart. You see how there was great rejoicing? Verse 17, there was very great rejoicing, gladly doing what God had commanded in his word. It's so easy to come to the gathering and have a nice time and to see everyone and enjoy it and maybe get a wee lift from the sermon or whatever. But then as soon as we say amen at the end, it's like we never went in. Just go back out how we were before we came in. But when we come hungry, when we come desiring to see God, the Holy Spirit does this amazing work in our hearts and, 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 and creates in us a desire to obey Him. You see, for, for us whose hearts are awakened in the Spirit, it's not a, choy, a chore to obey God. It's a joy. It's a pleasure. And if our gathering is just out of habit or, or getting a wee spiritual fix, then we shouldn't do it. <laughs> I don't want our gatherings to be like that. The goal is God himself. And to move towards God is to change our behavior, to take his word seriously and put it into practice. That's why in our, in our uh, times in our missional communities throughout the week, we talk about the passage that we've, we've studied on Sunday so that we can apply it to our lives. And the reverse is also true. If we, if we start with just trying, to, uh, trying to, to do the obedience thing, 
without desiring God, we just end up in that cycle that you are familiar with, because I am, of just trying and failing and trying and failing. Because our hearts have never been awakened. We just feel some kind of moral obligation to, I need to be a better Christian. I need to do this. Why am I not doing this? Why am I struggling? Because we're not just saying, Lord, I need you. So if that's you, if that's you this morning, you're in that cycle, you know what I'm going to say by now? How's your appetite? The goal is God himself. Now, let me finish with this. I've literally no idea how long I've preached for, but I know it's not six hours. Um, But let me finish with this, and I'm going to try and sum this all up. (laughs) (coughs) Excuse me. Worship, joy, and obedience. That's what happened in that, pe- in that people that day, you know, 2,500 years ago. Worship, joy, and obedience was, was the product. These are characteristics of, of, of godly people. And I'm telling you, uh, the most Christians I most want to be like <laughs> are these people. The worshipful people, the joyful people, and the obedient people. Do you long for, for these things to define us? I want us to be a church that is worshipful and joyful and obedient to God. And and, and please, the point isn't to beat ourselves up because we lack any of these things or to measure each one and see that they're all at the same level or or which one needs more topped up. That's not the point. These things are a gift that results from from hearts that are transformed by the Spirit of God. The point is that we can't muster these things up. Worship and joy and obedience to God only come through by being revived by the Holy Spirit. By being made new in Jesus. By being awakened by his spirit working in us. And that spiritual renewal, that revival, that comes from a hunger for his word. Not that we exalt the Bible where, where it's God. No, no, but actually because it's in The point isn't just to desire worship and joy and obedience. And it's not just to desire the Bible more. We can know the Bible inside out and still not have God. But the the point is to desire more of God himself, to come before him and and ask him to show us more of his beauty, his love and his faithfulness and his honor and his glory and his goodness. I genuinely want revival in our hearts and in this church. I genuinely want that. But you know what I want more than that? Way more than that? I just want us to want God. To see him more clearly, to, to know him deeply, to, to walk with him more closely. And become people so ridiculously and overwhelmingly in awe of him that worship and joy and obedience just flow out of us. And I want to say this one more time. I want to ask the question one more time. And then we're going to take a few moments just to reflect and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us. And then I'll pray. So one more time, let me ask us, how's your appetite? How's your appetite? Come Holy Spirit, let's take a few moments in silence. Father, you're so good. 
just want to firstly thank you for your word because without this we wouldn't know anything about you we'd just be making guesses still be lost uh, Father I pray that you would create in us a hunger for you a desire to know you a desire to walk with you closely a desire to be in awe of you Lord would you please move among us and show yourself to this group of people and when we see you, we will be exceedingly and ridiculously, overwhelmingly in awe of you. Because that's the only response to the people who see you. Uh, Father, I pray that, that we would become a people who have appetites for you. For you to fill us. But I pray that we would, uh, like this, like, Isaiah 55 says that, that we wouldn't waste our money on that which does not satisfy, but that we would come and buy and eat from you because it's all free. I pray that we would be like the people in Nehemiah 8 and we would go off and, and, and eat your uh, fat and, and drink that rich wine, this, this rich, deep food that satisfies and fills us up and makes us joyful. Holy Spirit, would you revive us? Would you awaken us? Sustain us, Lord. I pray that we would be uh, strengthened by you.